0: Welcome to episode thirteen fifty one of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from FanGraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of FanGraphs. Hello, Meg.
1: Hello. I I haven't read an intro yet. Am I am I violating my <laughs> contract? Am I shirking my duties?
0: Yeah, I know. I guess I I need to (laughs) cede the intro to to you two at some point. I've just been doing it every time. Jeff was always very hesitant about doing it because I would do it most of the time and then he would have to do it and he'd get in his head and he'd be forgetting what he had to say, even though it's basically just, hello, this is a podcast. But yeah, we'll work on that. Maybe next week. Okay. You've had quite a week as it is, so I'd want to add to your (laughs) your burden. (laughs) You're right in the middle of rolling out positional power rankings, which is basically a full-time job, and uh, you're writing one and also editing a bunch, and then Fangraphs rolled out framing this week, which was really cool, and every single player signed an extension at the same time, which is extremely inconsiderate and already you're up at all hours and all night watching the mariners play in japan so (laughs) this is just like everything that possibly could have happened in one week isn't that wonderful
1: i don't Really know what day it is. Um, I know that it is probably very boring to people who have to like go to their real jobs where they have you know accounting responsibilities or like have to plan a city or you know whatever people do to pay the rent. Uh, to hear from an editor who gets to worry about baseball a day about like how much of a bummer it is that there's so much baseball to worry about. But yeah, you know it was a long off season and there mm-hmm. were days where we were like I don't know what to write about today. There is yep. nothing going on and. And I <laughs> really you know, could have
0: spaced this out you know? right and <laughs>
1: and we will get into some of these extensions but uh you know when the when the Blake Snell extension came across I sat in my in my office and yelled Sullivan
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so. the Rays were partly responsible for this extension craze this week but yep. I don't know. I I guess we can start with uh, maybe a happier subject or a a bittersweet subject. I don't know if it's happy or sad or what, but you watched a lot of Mariners baseball this week, and it it went well. It, It went a lot better for the Mariners than it did for the A's, who not only lost a couple games, but also had Jesus Lozardo shut down and maybe lost Matt Olson for a while. That was not a fun week for the A's, but everyone had their tears jerked. By the Ichiro retirement which I kind of personally wasn't expecting because I, I felt like that was in the past almost like we did this last year Ichiro pretty much already retired last May and this felt like almost a technicality but when it actually happened it kind of made everyone cry
1: <laughs> well and it was it was a very strange I mean we should acknowledge that I on purpose set an alarm mm-hmm. <laughs> to wake up uh, at the for yesterday's game I will admit to maybe not going to sleep before it started. Yeah. Uh first pitch was 2:35 in the morning my time. And so, you know, you don't necessarily trust your senses at that time of night and um you know the the broadcast sort of got word that this was happening that Ichiro had no- notified the Mariners that he was going to be retiring like at the end of the game. Yeah. And uh it was wild because you know, the I thought the the crowds in Tokyo were amazing. Like you could feel the energy there. People were so excited to see Ichiro. They were so excited to see Kikuchi last night. It just had this like really terrific crackling sound to it. And so that existed before we knew that Ichiro was retiring. And I can't say for sure that like the the hush that went over the crowd and then the the sound that came back was sort of all of those people simultaneously looking at their phones and then realizing that this icon was going to retire. But it did it did have kind of a feel like. Everyone had suddenly gotten, you know, brought up to speed and was and was just willing willing a hit that that didn't happen, but it's fine. You know, it just uh I, I don't know. I when i was in arizona various members of the fangrass staff saw ichiro at points cuz you know he was just there in camp and i was just remarking that like he he played at a time in my fandom where you know i was in high school so i just knew a lot less in general but like knew so much less about baseball than I do now, thankfully, mm-hmm. for everyone involved. <laughs> and his career has managed to span that entire time. Like, I feel yeah. like not just as a fan and a human being, but like as a baseball person, I have grown up at various points in his career. And so it was, it was very surreal. It did yeah. make me cry a little bit.
0: Yeah, well, it's hard not to when you see players crying because yeah. it's it's one thing to be impassive when you're watching from thousands of miles away, but then when someone else breaks down and it's a baseball player on the field, which you don't usually see unless it's like Wilmer Flores and and he's just thinks he's been traded or whatever, but uh, you don't usually see that, but when you see D Gordon do the bow, and then Ichiro tell him to come in for the hug. And then Kikuchi was clearly very emotional about this because Ichiro is like a hero of his and someone he grew up watching, and now he's his teammate for two games, and then he's there when he's retiring. And, and the Felix hug was pretty nice also. It yeah. seemed like there was some some genuine feeling there. So, yeah, when you see that, it's uh, pretty hard to keep dry eyes.
1: Yeah, and it just had this very... You know, the the Mariners are such a weird franchise. I think um, they were remarking upon this on the broadcast last night. They're such a weird franchise in that there, there's been so little success as a team. And yet you can look back at the last, you know, 30 years of baseball, 40 years of baseball. And it's like there are these very important players that have emerged from the shadow of this kind of cursed franchise to be like really important parts of the game. And so, you know, and I think Ichiro was the last of that even though he ended up occupying the same roster as Felix at various points, like he was sort of the last of that old guard of like successful Mariners baseball, mm-hmm. you know, back when they won sometimes. And and so to, to have him sort of finally passing out of the game, I don't know, I, I feel like we're in a weird, uncomfortable kind of twitchy era because until they start winning, we haven't really closed this chapter, but we kind of have because the last, real bastion of it is is retiring now i don't know it made me it made me feel a lot of stuff
0: yeah well yeah along the lines of what you're saying it's really cool and special that a baseball player can theoretically play for as long as Ichiro played he played for 27 years counting his his whole NPV career so I mean it always boggles my mind that that can ever happen obviously that doesn't happen very often Ichiro is very much an outlier in his longevity and if he had not been Ichiro he probably wouldn't have had quite as much longevity as he had because those last few years uh, I don't know but I think that It is really cool that someone can play for that much of someone else's entire life so that it's just this constant. I mean, if you're a Japanese fan who's been watching Ichiro since he came up at 18 and now he's 45 and he's back in Japan playing Major League Baseball games – That's just amazing. And it is really kind of incredible because I always think like this is the highest level of the sport in the world. It's incredibly competitive. You have to be the very best in the world, one of the 750 best to have a roster spot on one of these teams. Or I guess seven hundred and fifty six because there were twenty-eight <laughs> men on these rosters, which maybe why Hedro was there. But anyway, you have to be one of the very best in the world for such a long time that I always think like, well, that shouldn't be possible because like you're only at your peak. You're in your prime for a, a relatively brief period. Like you usually most players, you you reach your prime and you're twenty-six or twenty-seven or something, and maybe you plateau for a few years and then you decline and I always think like, well, you shouldn't be able to play at this level if you're not at your prime because someone else will be in his prime and he'll come along and take your spot. And yet there are players who are so good that even when they do decline, they are still better than anyone else or better enough to keep their roster spot. And so you can watch a player play high-level baseball for, you know, not a lifetime, hopefully, but like babies born when Itro was coming up are like 27 now, which is how old Itro was when he came to the Mariners. So. That is really amazing and special because then you get these transcendent moments where generations get linked both on the field and also among fans who were watching. And, you know, they watched Ichiro when they were growing up and now they have kids and now they're all watching Ichiro. So I love that about baseball.
1: Well, it's just he's such a he's so he's not so unique. Things are unique or not. He's unique (laughs) in that like the fastidiousness with which he attended to his his game and his person and i was texting with a friend who is another maniac who was awake while this was happening and i was like part of me wants part of me wants them to like just groove one to him but i don't Mm -hmm. want them to do that because i think it would bother him right like getting that that final hit in that way seems like it would not you know sort of be consistent with what What we understand of his public persona and sort of the things that are important to him privately about how he played the game and conducted himself and you know that sort of charity probably wouldn't sit well with him I mean I'm speculating about a person I don't know but this is also one of the things about him you feel like you do know him even if he's you know, been at times sort of you know more reticent to talk to the press than others. Like was like, well, oh, they shouldn't they shouldn't do it. He should either get a hit or not. And either way, it doesn't really matter what happens today because this you know everyone's going to stand mm-hmm. when he yeah. walks off the field. And Kikuchi crying really got me though. Man, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was not ready for that. Oh,
0: I know. <laughs> well, I did want him to beat out that last hit. Yeah, and I, th- I thought at first that he had. It kind of looked like he had. And I guess it's. Sort of sad that he didn't because you know That a few years ago given the Same have. circumstances he would have yeah. and so It's kind of like in a way it's The right way to go out because it's like Oh well I guess he's lost a step And so he he should go because he used To beat out that kind of hit all the time And I mean Semyon sort of double clutched on it, which I assume was not like the shortstop equivalent of serving up a meatball where he was trying to give him the infield hit. Right. Probably not, but Probably you never not. know, maybe. So anyway, maybe that was a fitting way for it to end, but I would have liked it to end on one more infield hit on a little dribbler.
1: Yeah. I don't remember I don't remember much about the last uh, week, candidly, but um <laughs> I I don't remember which at bat it was, but he had one he had one at bat where he struck out looking and The home plate umpire was uh, very boisterous in his gesturing. And I was Mm. sort of surprised because I can't think of anyone who, (laughs) you know, is more beloved in that room than Ichiro. And here's this man (laughs) who no one knows or cares about except his family. Sorry, guy. like you're fine. But... (laughs) And, and you are going to boisterously, like, be sad, like, yeah. comport yourself with some some sorrow. I'm surprised yeah. you got out of there.
0: <laughs> He's going to get a more generous strike zone than a 45-year-old Ichiro Wait. in his final two games Come playing on, in Japan. <laughs> that's Yeah, that's the sort of situation where you just give him a couple inches that's there. It's fine. <laughs> Don't worry about it.
1: No one's going to be mad. The A's aren't going to be mad. It's fine.
0: <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I am I'm sorry to see him go. It's funny that you uh you mentioned, you know, how there's only one degree of uniqueness and you can either be unique or not unique. And I can't remember who made this argument to me, but I keep thinking about it and find it semi-convincing that it's okay to say so unique or like put a degree on uniqueness because obviously we're all unique in some way, but we're all unique in many ways also, so sure. that like Ichiro is unique in that uh, he played 27 years, or I don't know if that's quite unique, but it's close, and he's unique in that he could place his hits wherever he wanted, and he's unique in that he had that amazing, memorable batting stance, and he's unique in that he hit for really high averages. So he's kind of unique in a lot of ways. Like, there's more uniqueness about Ichiro than there is about most players, even though every player is unique in some way.
1: I could be persuaded to this cause.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, not I will not spend my fussy editing uh, quota on that. I will spend it on other things.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, any other Mariners reflection? Ichiro emotions.
1: Uh, was, yeah, Kikuchi's fun. That yeah. that that'll be that'll be fun every five days. It's nice to find a fun thing. Mm-hmm. I am definitely not going to remember that Jay Bruce was a Mariner in 2019. <laughs> I'm just like accepting that now. Yeah. Uh That thought struck me a couple times. Well, Yesterday we'll,
0: we'll see how long he remains a mariner. <laughs> okay. <but laughs> yeah, that's part of it. <laughs> but hey, they're two and oh. So yeah. that's good. <laughs> Undefeated <laughs> Seattle Mariners. Oh boy. Well, I'm I'm trying to drag out our Mariner's banter because <laughs> <laughs> I'm scared of talking about extensions, the extension onslaught. Oh my god. I've gotta do it. I should probably mention that uh, we have a couple of interviews coming up on this episode. Oh, yeah. Seems like something that maybe I should have mentioned earlier. Yeah. This is a team preview podcast. It's the penultimate team preview podcast. And we're going to be talking about the New York Yankees with Lindsey Adler and the Miami Marlins with Andre Fernandez. Could not really imagine two more mismatched teams <laughs> except that they both have Derek Jeter in common. So we'll be talking to both of them soon, but we've got to get through the extension gauntlet here so Sam and I talked for basically a, an episode about Mike Trout's extension. So that's out of the way unless there's anything you want to add to that. But no. boy, we have a, a whole lot of other extensions. We've got Blake <laughs> Snell. We've got, it seems, Paul Goldschmidt. We've got Alex Bregman. We've got Eloy Jimenez. We've got Ryan Presley. We've got Brandon Lowe. Am I missing anyone? I don't know. I think that's it for the moment, but <laughs> there may have been more while we were talking. So the big question, I guess, is what does it all mean? And uh, I am uncertain and kind of conflicted about what my takeaway about this is. And so I'm looking forward to talking to you about it to see if we can come to any kind of consensus about this.
1: Well, I think it is useful probably to separate these into different buckets. Yes. Right. So there, there is the the sort of, well, I guess Jimenez is like the most extreme example of this on the prospect mm-hmm. side has never played a major league inning mm-hmm. was ticketed for for Charlotte and so he's probably on the most extreme end of the of the prospect side of this along with I'm pretty sure it's it's Lowey Oh, and, um, is it? Okay. I, there's some there's some weirdness. I'm gonna get yelled at by Eric and Kylie for mixing these <laughs> up, but the race list was twenty thousand words long. So, so there. <laughs> so you know, we sort of have this like prospect contingent where it appears that may, maybe the force that we're seeing is a a bit of nervousness and trepidation on the part of some of these young guys to be reaching free agency when they are approaching thirty, uh, mm-hmm. and so. Might be feeling pressure um, from their organizations that are reticent to promote them as quickly as they are perhaps ready to take some money now, so that they have that life changing contract. Even though you know, if they were to be able to enter free agency today, they might be making and probably would be making, based on the analysis we've run at Fangraphs, significantly more than these contracts are Mm -hmm. currently slated for. Right?
0: Yeah, according to Baseball Reference, it's uh, Lau rhymes with now okay thank you because there's (laughs) also a
1: there's another there there are like three of them (laughs) that are spelled the same way but pronounced differently well two of them are the same because they're brothers i'm pretty sure but anyway wow thank you i knew it wasn't low but i
0: couldn't remember that's more than i knew (laughs) so yeah i mean it's it's hard to talk about extensions and analyze extensions because we're talking about players at completely different stages of their career from veterans like Goldschmidt, who was a year away from free agency, to Jimenez, who is not even in the major leagues yet. So these really run the gamut of age and service time and salary and length. So it's kind of hard to group them all together. I think that The knee-jerk reaction, and and I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong, is just that, oh, we saw a bunch of extensions all at once. We know that free agency is changing and has not been working as well for many players as it did for decades. So this must be a response to free agency and players being scared of, of entering free agency and not getting paid and so wanting to take what they can get. and. I'm sure there is an element of that to at least some of these extensions, but right. I'm kind of wary of just saying, yes, it's that, it's a, a direct reaction to the changes in free agency. Because Jeff and I had that conversation about a month ago, and that was when the NOAA extension was signed and the Severino extension and a couple others. And we just, I think, assumed as everyone did, okay, this is a response to free agency. And then Jeff did a post. Remember when Jeff still did posts? That was nice. And uh, he did some research and he added up all the extensions from previous winters. And he found that basically there was no evidence of a trend toward extensions and that there had been just as many or more extensions in previous off seasons before anyone was worried about free agency. And that was many extensions ago, obviously, because a bunch of these have happened since that post. But Even just eyeballing the research he did there and kind of adding what we've seen since then, it doesn't necessarily seem like this is out of line with historic norms. So. I'm struggling a little with how much this is a response to other trends we're seeing and how much we're falling prey to recency bias and selective memory and thinking that this has never happened before when it actually has.
1: Right. I mean, I think that I think that that's a good question to ask. I, I am... I am conscious of and I, you know, Jeff's piece was good. I know that when Craig uh, Edwards wrote about the Bregman extension, which is another one of the <laughs> yeah. many extensions that happened this week, I guess baseball's trying to kill me in like a really weird way <laughs> that, you know, he he found sort of a similar thing when he took research that Jeff had did and sort of continued it forward that we are actually sort of in a low point in right. terms of how many of these we have. I do think it'll be interesting to sort of reevaluate after we have this off season and the next off season, because I think that the narrative around free agency has changed in a really dramatic way in the last two years. And so it yeah. wouldn't surprise me if we are seeing the beginning of a new trend. I don't think we will be able to call it that for with any kind of certainty or confidence for a little bit. But I mean, we do know that there is downward pressure on a certain part of the free agent market even if the guys at the top are still you know doing really well so Mm -hmm. it feels too much uh, like a like it would be too much of a coincidence to say that they are completely decoupled from one another but I do think that there are going to be you know parts of each of these that could read a little differently depending on you know the particular player involved like this Imena's extension strikes me as being you know the White Sox using what they planned to do with his service time as really good leverage right. to extract a contract where he might not have been inclined to, you know, take one before. Mm-hmm. There's also stuff about that profile that could be a little concerning. Like, i has got really big, really. F- fast and he might not be able to stick in the field. And then you're, you know, a DH who has this really incredible bet, but that's a particular profile and one that's being devalued in the free agent market. So you can find things with each of these that make it make a lot of sense. And I don't think that any like person is going to look at Alex Bregman and be like, well, no, you should have turned down a hundred (laughs) million (laughs) dollars.
0: Right. Cause you
1: know, (laughs) you should do that. (laughs) for the collective good of labor. But I do think that, you know, it sort of behooves us to take a hard look at these and and look at where the pressure points are because I think that they are shifting and teams can make a more compelling argument to players about like you should take this guaranteed money now because who knows what's going to happen when you're 30 and you're on the market and it's a new CBA so Mm -hmm. you know it's like we should keep a very close eye I think that's where we land
0: I mean I can almost see free agency mattering more in a case like say Paul Goldschmidt who is he's one year away from free agency he's going to turn 32 before he reaches free agency or would have reached free agency and you know He's still a, a really phenomenal player, but maybe a little bit below where he was in his absolute best years. And he's in that part of the aging curve where teams are just not giving out long-term deals to to free agents anymore. And he is a first baseman and doesn't have the, the added dimensions that players do at, at other positions. So I could certainly see him saying, I'm not going to do much better than 5 and 130 on the free agent market. So I'll just sign now and I'll get the security and I won't have to worry about it. And so I I could see that, you know, and on the other hand, I mean, the Cardinals do have a history of signing players to extensions in the past. And as soon as they traded for Goldschmidt, I think there was an expectation that they would at least try to to sign him to an extension. So it's not that surprising that he signed one. He was kind of an obvious extension candidate. So I just don't know it. And with other guys who are so far away from free agency, like Jimenez or or even Blake Snell. I mean, maybe the Blake Snell thing just comes down to what we've seen so many times before. Sometimes with Tampa Bay Rays players and and pitchers, which is just you want to take what you can get because I mean, he's been on a team. He saw everyone have Tommy John surgery on that mm-hmm. staff over the last year, and so or think about Luis Severino, who signed an extension last month, and now he's injured and has rotator cuff issues, and hopefully he'll be okay. But who knows if you haven't gotten your Big payday yet, and someone offers you $50 million, even if you are the Cy Young winner. I think the other thing is that. People look at the terms of extensions and just kind of mentally match them up against free agent deals, which, you know, you can't really do because technically this is only buying out one of Snell's free agent years and then the rest are arbitration or pre-arbitration years. And I mean, if he had stayed healthy, he would have done really well in arbitration, presumably with a Cy Young award on his resume, but there's no guarantee that he would have stayed healthy. So. Like it comes back to the, the fundamental structure of baseball economics, which is just that players who are young and early in their careers don't get paid. And that is why they're willing to sign away their futures to get guaranteed money, which is the case and has always been the case and will continue to be the case unless the union is able to extract some concessions one way or another from the owners that change that. So I just. Don't know. Like, is this different in nature from the Chris Archer extension or, right. or the Evan Longoria extension? If anything, it it feels to me like some of these extensions are maybe a little more player friendly than some of the, the really egregious ones that we've seen in the past. So I don't know. I I'm kind of uncertain where I stand about all of it. I'm I'm definitely open to the idea that free agency and, and the changes we've seen there are exerting a, a new and, and more intense pressure on guys and that that might be factoring into their thinking. On the other hand, it seems like a lot of this was happening before any of us were worried about free agency. So I'm just not sure how far to take the conclusion.
1: Right. And I think it affords an opportunity for us to sort of refine, you know, as analysts and as fans, like what it is that we're looking for, what we're hoping to see from the union and see them prioritize, you know, as as the ones that are likely going to face the You know, the hardest battle of the two sides, uh, given the concessions that they've made in the past. Like, what is it that we think will generate a system that everyone can agree is reasonably fair and that fosters a sport that like, you know, young people want to play so that the next Mike Trout doesn't decide to go play football or basketball or what have you. And I think that we've all said for a long time we want players to get money much earlier in their careers because, you know, there is a, an actual performance argument to be made for not giving those long contracts to older players even if we maybe didn't quite mean like exactly 30 when we <laughs> said that. Well, this is us doing that, right, or the system doing that, but clearly there are aspects of this that are still exerting a pressure that we're uncomfortable with. So I think that, you know, this is the analysis that comes out of this I think will be really useful for understanding like what it is that the union needs to prioritize in the next CBA so that it's not just as crude as we'll get money to younger guys. It's like, well, this isn't maybe we don't think that this is still reflective of the value that these players will bring to their organizations over the long term and as we get smarter in the public sphere about valuing you know there's always like this icky calculus right of making mm-hmm. them assets but like understanding what the true value is that they bring to organizations then hopefully everyone can be a bit more clear-eyed in the arguments they're making about like what it is that the 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 players need to sort of write the balance that we're seeing because it's clear that those deals aren't coming for a lot of guys in free agency. If that's true and you're still limiting the avenues that players have to get paid, you're still going to see, I would imagine, compression of how much revenue they're getting relative to ownership. So Mm -hmm. it's going to be important that we get (laughs) that right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely Vicky if you're using your service time manipulation to manipulate a player into signing an extension so that his defense will magically be fixed or whatever and he'll be on the opening day roster and... It's maybe not different from what we've seen with like Scott Kingery and John Singleton, which are maybe two examples of extensions that have actually not worked out for teams, or at least not yet in in Kingery's case. Yeah, Obviously, Jimenez is is better than those guys, and this is a a bigger deal, but maybe not that different in nature. I, I think what's kind of interesting to me is that some of these players who just signed extensions were... Among the players who very recently were kind of making some noise about Mm -hmm. being upset about teams renewing their contracts for the minimum, which like that was an issue with Snell, that was an issue with Bregman, because that's been happening where teams have the ability to just renew their players who are pre arbitration for the major league minimum. And there's always kind of a backlash to that. Like, you know, if Snell just won the Cy Young award, couldn't you give him a raise? And and then owners or GMs or whoever are like, well, if we did it for them, we'd have to do it for everyone. And, you know, it's like, well, would that be so bad? Right. But, it, that argument but, always <laughs> is
1: hilarious to me. It's like, oh, okay, great. Go do that. That sounds good.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> but, But obviously, and and then the really unforgivable part of it is that, like, some teams will apply a penalty if the players don't, like, voluntarily accept having their contracts renewed. So, like, if they're... Just forced to earn that amount that they have no say in, then teams will actually fine them for that, which is unbelievable, but that happens. But it is kind of interesting that Snell, for instance, would go from being upset about that and making public comments about the Rays' unwillingness to give him a raise To then saying yes I want to be a Ray for for all this time and and sign away a free agent year and uh, who knows if he'll actually spend all that time with the Rays because they have a history of signing players to extensions and, and trading them but I don't know how much of that is Posturing and just sort of saying something and then it's all kind of forgiven the next negotiation you have because that's always the question. It's like, will this come back to bite the team later when the player has to decide whether to stay or not? Or would you get a discount if you're generous or more generous than you absolutely have to be early in the player's career? Like you know Mike Trout I think He got renewed for the minimum once And then the second time they gave him More than they had to And so people have suggested maybe he was so Grateful for that that he signed Which I think is, is kind of a leap But anyway I just I don't know what that means whether it means That they weren't actually as upset as they sounded Or whether it's just well you can be upset One day but then when someone offers you 50 million dollars the next day you get over it
1: I think I could get over a lot of stuff For 50 million dollars <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I could be too. like, oh, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. We're good now.
0: Probably, yeah. I don't <laughs> know. It's. Uh, I, I saw a tweet that said that according to MLB Trade Rumors extension tracker, there have been 15 guaranteed multi-year extensions signed since February, not counting Goldschmidt. Last year, there were 12 the entire offseason, which makes it sound like, whoa, trend. Everything is out of control. So many right. extensions but i i think that's like a, just a little misleading because i mean a i think there were only 3 of those extensions prior to february this off season so it's like maybe 18 19 total and that is more than last winter but if you go back a few years i'm just eyeballing it it, it looks like there were like 20 18 24 29 and i'm not Comparing the dollars and the service time and everything right now. So maybe there are some differences there. But just in terms of, of quantity, I think maybe it's it's not so stark as it sounds. But as you said... Maybe there was like a rash of extensions and then there was a lull of extensions and now this new rash of extensions actually yeah. is a trend that's related to something. So it's it's like, you know, we can only see what's happening right now, not what's going to happen a year or two from now. So it's kind of hard to extrapolate and say this is why it's happening when we can't see the future.
1: Well, I think a lot of it's going to depend on what, you know, and this might vary depending on who's advising them, you know, Like what are these guys' perspective, what is their perspective on what the next CBA is necessarily going to have to offer them that might address some of the things that are keeping them from just reaching free agency at a young age and being able to sign market deals? You know, like it is pretty surprising to me given what we've seen that like, it's weird that Peter Alonzo has not signed one of these extensions Mm -hmm. because he seems like Lowy like a prime candidate for a guy whose profile, I mean, it's a little different with Loey, but like Alonzo's profile does not age particularly well. That is not a profile that is in demand on the free agent market and his service time is going to get gamed by the mets so he won't be up for quite a while. I mean, he'll be up in 15 days, but he won't be a free agent for quite a while. <laughs> it's so great to just know exactly when it's going to be. <laughs> but I think that there are, you know, there might be a couple kind of canaries in the coal mine that would help us to assess how widespread of a trend it is, but I do think that there is likely to be a variety of perspectives on you know, maybe you think that the next CBA negotiations going to go well for players, and you're willing to sort of sit it out and see where you end up on the other side of of 2021. And then there might be guys who are like, I don't know, Blake Blake Snell's from like Shoreline. He lives like, I don't know, like half an hour away from me in the off season. You can buy a lot with 50 million dollars up there still. Mm-hmm. You could buy yeah. a nice. You can still buy a nice house up there for not fifty million dollars, which in the greater Seattle area is like <laughs> kind of shocking on its own. So, you know, guys might just say, "I want my, I want the life changing money and want to not worry about my kids." Or
2: mm-hmm.
1: maybe you're Mike Trout and you're like, I don't know, four hundred thirty million sounds like enough. Yeah, I haven't listened to your episode yet. I'm sorry, I've been <laughs> <pretty> busy.
0: <laughs> yeah, you have been pretty <laughs> <very> busy. <laughs> yeah, I think that right. It's also I don't know maybe if there's a, a work stoppage. I don't know if players are taking that into account and saying, sure. if there is a work stoppage, maybe I miss a year of my prime or something. And right. so I'll I'll make my money now while I know that there will be baseball games. I, I guess that could enter into it. But I don't know. It's just wanted to keep all of this in mind and factor in that. This might mean something and might signify Something but I also want to be conscious Of the fact that this is extension season And it's not usually Maybe compressed in one week (laughs) Like this which uh, is just Rude and stop procrastinating Till the end of spring training to make these deals There's a whole off season but I think that maybe there's some of That where it's just you know all this Happens usually around this Time of year but maybe it's not quite so fast And furious and maybe now In this environment and this atmosphere atmosphere we're more inclined to read into it and it's like our pal michael bauman i was just talking to him about this and he said he thinks it's kind of like a rorschach test because you know you can you can kind of see all these extensions and make of it whatever your original stance was like if you thought that one thing was happening then you can take this as evidence of all that it's hard to reach a definitive conclusion
1: yeah it is i think that you know in some ways, they teams were quite foolish to wait to do this because we were we were just getting back to feeling really good about baseball, and now <laughs> we have to talk about this again. And we have to; it's very important. I don't mean to abdicate responsibility. I'm just saying, like, mm-hmm. I watched Ichiro uh, retire yesterday and felt feelings about baseball, and now I'm feeling slightly different feelings than I was. So,
0: yeah, <laughs>
1: should have timed that a little differently.
0: Yeah right and it would be nice if we could Just feel unreservedly pleased About some of these extensions because Hey guys got paid and they're staying With their teams which is always a nice Thing when a team's fan base can count On watching guys for years to come and If we felt like these guys were signing extensions Because they just liked where they were And wanted to stay there and felt like they were Getting good deals then that would be great But there's all this other baggage there and Amidst all of this of course Mookie Betts Was asked about it because he Is the, the obvious guy who's going to be a free agent and so there's a lot of curiosity about whether he'll be the next to sign an extension or not, because the the upcoming free agent classes are, are looking a little thinner after all these extensions. Yeah. So Mookie did not make it sound as if he is likely to sign an extension. No, I mean, he has no real incentive to say, yes, I want to sign an extension. I just I'm happy here and I want to stay for whatever they want to give me. But he made it sound like maybe he would uh, at least be willing to go to free agency and test the the water. So. We'll see if that actually happens or if they make an offer that uh, he can't refuse or decides not to refuse at some point in the next year.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, I, I do miss the days of free agency where we could speculate about like whether it was the sushi or, or the avocados. <laughs> we can't do that anymore. It's very yeah. fraught now. That's fine. But yeah, I, I bet – I would – I bet – oh, no. I was about to do a pun and not even mean to. Um, <laughs> I would imagine that Betts will test the market. He should. I mean, mm-hmm. he's going to be – like you said, he's going to be one of the only guys of his caliber that will be out there. Um He's yeah. been second only to Trout in terms of the war he's produced since he was a full-time regular, so mm-hmm. do it, Mookie.
0: Yeah, all right. Well, I guess we've, we've covered this topic. It doesn't look like any extensions have been signed since we started talking, so <laughs> we can uh, take a quick break, and we'll be back with Lindsay Adler to talk about the Yankees, followed by Andre Fernandez to talk about the Marlins. And we're joined by Lindsay Adler, who covers the Yankees for The Athletic. Hello, Lindsay. Hey,
2: guys. How's it going?
0: It's going pretty well. So my impression of Yankees fans is that they're not often content, which I can say as someone who once was a Yankees fan. From my impression of continuing Yankees fans, it seems as if they are very happy in the five minutes or so after they win a World Series. But it's been almost 10 years since that happened. And this offseason, the Yankees did a lot of stuff but they didn't necessarily behave like the Yankees have historically behaved. So are Yankees fans, judging by your mentions, upset about no Harper, no Machado, no enormous contracts, or have they come around on what the plan was this winter?
2: I would say people were very confused this Mm -hmm. offseason. I think now that Harper and Machado have jobs elsewhere, uh, I think it's kind of died down. You know, there are the there are the people who reply to me and they're like Twitter name is like sell the team Hal" and stuff like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I think it's settled down a little bit because there's not really much they can do. But I do think I do think fans are struggling with kind of the adjustment period toward the new philosophy with with the way that the Yankees are. Are constructing their roster
0: right and they're still really good <laughs> they're a really good team and yeah they
2: were they won 100 <laughs> games last year and everyone just forgets it
0: <laughs> yeah i guess if you're going to win 100 games you should try not to do it when your historic <laughs> rival wins 108 because that kind of makes what you did look less impressive but they were really good and according to the projections at least they are better than boston now mm-hmm Do you have a theory for why they did not do that, why they're operating differently? I mean, we know that Cashman has wanted to build from within a little more and Mm -hmm. not just rely entirely on signing free agents. But of course, if you're the Yankees, it still makes sense to sign big free agents sometimes.
2: Yeah, Cashman and I think Hal have actually talked about this quite a bit. Cashman actually did like a 40-minute media session a few weeks ago, and he talked about how the way he described it was getting in knockdown drag out fights with George Steinbrenner over spending in free agency because he said that George had this you know just hatred of the of the 25 man limit and Cashman would just have to tell him like you know you can't we we can't sign them all we just can't and so they he has actually talked quite a bit about You know, changing the way that they build the roster, and I think he he and Hal understand that it's an adjustment for fans. But I do think Cashman's having actually a lot of fun. It seems to me building building it through the farm system and doing it differently. And I get the sense that some of the bigger contracts in the past they handed out, you know, late career Mariano, late career Jeter, Cashman just. He's very scared of betting against himself right now. So I think when it came to things like the the Machado stuff or other free agent negotiations, I think he's just particularly cognizant now of not overspending just because they can.
1: So it is not as if they did. Nothing this offseason, season, uh, mm-hmm. as we've indicated, there were a number of, of moves, including, I will, I, I suppose assume the, the James Paxton mantle in Jeff's absence, <laughs> uh, as an enthusiast and a sort of Mariners fan. You know, they, they made a big move to bring in Paxton, um, they've, made smaller moves in recent weeks to try to shore up the space that Severino was going to fill. Um, they're expecting to um, presumably get some contribution on the starting pitching side from guys who threw limited innings last year, but have shown promise. Where, where do you see the starting pitching sort of picture? That's hard to say, pitching picture shaking out for them. Do you think that Gio is, is truly it or might we see uh, additional signings on their side, or are they going to look at guys like Luis Sisa and some some of these younger dudes and try to fill uh, if there's if there's more need to, if Severino's in- injury ends up being more severe than we expect it to be?
2: Yeah, I think I think their rotation situation is actually pretty interesting because they've got now in the back end CeCe Sabathia, who you don't really know what you're going to get from him at this point. And then you've got guys like Jonathan Loisaga Domingo Herman, and then Luis Sessa who I see him being used as more long relief mop up, but, um, you know, is kind of being stretched out to start. Cashman was actually pretty clear today that Gio Gonzalez is only insurance. He said something along the lines of like, you know, we are very invested in Loisaga and Herman, and particularly with Gio, you know, you have to be in camp basically to make the team out of the gate. And so it doesn't really seem like there is a straightforward path to the rotation for Gonzalez. I do think, I, I think about it a lot early in, I guess in mid-February when pitchers reported, Dylan Betances said something to us along the lines of like, everyone is overlooking James Paxton as one of the biggest off-season transactions. And I do think that really, that Paxton really does kind of add a, a really essential Piece that they were missing last year kind of another guy who if you if you can rely on him for innings uh you know qualifier can can really get you through the season I think yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> they're all fluky injuries it's fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah
2: yeah, yeah. Right. I I hate having you know to to begin every sentence about Paxton you know with if he stays healthy but yeah, you know, I don't particularly want Yankees fans yelling at me, so I might as well just get that out of the way, <laughs> A- address their concerns head on. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and why do you think it is that C.C. Sabathia chose to make the preseason retirement announcement and presumably do the the farewell tour? I mean, there are pluses and and minuses of doing that, I suppose. And he's been really fun to watch. Like he's not peak C.C. obviously, and he's had some serious health problems and some less serious health problems that he's working his way back from. But this late career Sabathia, where he's found a way to be pretty productive, if not quite his old self, has been a lot of fun to watch. It's a a difficult transition for some pitchers to make and he's made it really well.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, to you or I, it may seem like now he has to go through the season with the whole, you know, the ceremony of retirement hanging over him. But I think my understanding is he made the announcement early on just because he just wanted to get that out of the way. He didn't want all of you know, the crap about like, is CC going to retire or is he not? And, you know, what I really respect about how CC has handled this is that I think he's, he's one of the rare guys who is kind of seen when it's time to, to hang him up. He wants to go out, you know, he wants to go out on solid footing. And I think, you know, his knee and I, I'm assuming his angioplasty kind of makes the decision for him. You know, but I, I mean, we all see guys like the one I always think of is like Ryan Howard riding buses in the minors. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it, it's hard to know when to walk away. And so I think CC just wanted to be definitive about it, make it really simple and then, you know, and, and just get the most out of out of his final year.
0: Greg Bird had a health scare, and when Greg Bird has a health scare, it's just inherently scarier than when anyone else has a health scare. And I want to protect Greg Bird because (laughs) I still believe, I don't know if I should, but both he and Luke Voigt have just really raked the spring. So is he okay, A, and do both of these guys fit? Can they both be full-time players or mostly full-time players because even in the absence of Gregorius there are a lot of moving pieces on that infield
2: yeah so Greg was hit on Wednesday on his right arm right above his elbow pad and you know he joked like of course it's never actually on the pad but he was just a little bit sore and so Aaron Boone sent him back to Tampa from Jupiter because Boone said like I remember when I would get hit and it was sore. And so everything seems to be fine. He said the the x-rays and the CT scan came back clear and he should play. But Boone was just really, he remembered that particular sensation. And he's really happy with how Bird has looked. And so he really didn't want any small thing like any stiffness to interrupt his mechanics. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's a really interesting thing to watch because you've got two guys who, you know, Cashman says, neither has proven themselves long term in the majors and no the intention is not to have them both on the roster right now while they've got four guys unexpectedly on the disabled list there is there's is space for that you know because they can plug Stanton in the outfield and so then they have the DH spot open but no that eventually they're going to make a decision and i think it's a really tough thing because do you go with the guy who you know, came out of nowhere last year, and this spring has done nothing to lose his standings. Mm-hmm. Or do you give it to Bird, who has worked really hard this spring, and you know their their spring numbers, which you know whatever is as basic as those can be, they're they're pretty evenly matched. And Boone has said that the left-handed thing with Bird isn't going to be a huge factor, but They're not, he says he's not interested in platooning them because he thinks each of them are everyday players and they can be effective against both handedness. So I think it's going to actually be a really tough thing to see because neither of them really deserves to be in AAA, you know?
0: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting just looking at, at the lineup right now, as it's listed, I mean, almost everyone is right-handed, other than yeah. Yeah. you've got Gardner, you got Bird, and yeah. then, of course, Hicks is a switch hitter, but he's mm-hmm. hurt right now, and Gregorius is a lefty, but it's it's sort of strange to see a Yankees lineup that is so right-handed heavy.
2: Yes, and then if you look, the rotation is super left-handed heavy. <laughs> it, it really is a brave new world here. <laughs>
1: Well, the guy who's going to be receiving all of that left-handed pitching is Gary Sanchez, who clearly had a 2018 that did not go the way that he or Yankees fans or the Yankees organization would have liked. You know, he has seemed to be somewhat on the mend in spring, although not quite back to where he was with that sort of torrid start to his career. So what's the latest and greatest on Gary, and Where where is the organization in terms of how they're thinking about his defense specifically? Because this seems like an issue that uh, will never die on Twitter, (laughs) but that is not a good indication of whether or not it is actually an issue that people should care about. So what's what's going on with Gary Sanchez?
2: Well, the organization is really committed to him. You know, they like the way he calls games. His his framing has improved and. Yes, he is working on his defense. And, you know, they're they're trying a few different things. They're trying to change his, you know, his positioning behind the plate. They're switching it up a little bit. Gary, you know, to me, he he looks like a different guy almost. He's, you know, he's lost a lot of weight and that's fine. His shoulder, you know, he had surgery over the off season, And so he seems to be pleased with how that's gone. But he just seems much lighter, much happier, just kind of kind of refreshed, and the prevailing sentiment is, you know, kind of that Gary got a little bit unlucky last year. He had, like, a, his batting average on balls in play was, like, 197, which, as we all know, indicates many things, but one of them being ba- bad luck. So I think the only thing to me is when you look at that bullpen, I think it's particularly scary to think about a guy who has had blocking Issues catching Adam Ottavino and Zach Britton, you know, at some points in the season. Stephen Tarpley reliably, but I think I think people are ready to give Gary Kent kind of a fresh start. And it, that year was so bad that it's hard not to see it as just like kind of a freak anomaly. So
1: yeah, it was a pretty a pretty down year. <laughs> 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 You can you can assure Yankees fans, Lindsay, that when we did our positional power rankings for catcher, which is, uh, well, Paul did a good job with it, but the position is garbage. But uh, <laughs> the Yankees came in fifth uh, and, and projected uh, more at the position. So Gary's looking up as far as our projections are concerned.
2: Yeah, when I, when I looked at the depth chart projections, Gary's projected to be the best hitting catcher in baseball. He's not projected to be the most valuable catcher in baseball, but he's projected to have like an 815 OPS or something like that. So it's, <laughs> it's just that a uh, defensive element that we all know everyone's hung up on.
0: Sort of it surprised people I think when the Yankees brought back Brett Gardner so mm-hmm. early in the offseason and I really like Brett Gardner. I just he's a fun player. He's uh kind of like not a very Yankee like player. <laughs> it was just weird for them to even develop a player at all when he came up. So, I've kind of had a, a soft spot for him and I feel like he gets underrated because he contributes in a lot of ways, but he is coming off a down year offensively and he is 35 now and of course, having Gardner under contract made it more untenable to to go sign someone higher profile. So mm-hmm. why do you think that they were so confident in Gardner that they they acted quickly and and brought him back and, and I guess he is well, at least while Hicks is out, he'll be playing center. I mean his defensive numbers are are still very strong despite his age, so I guess they are are confident mm-hmm. in that.
2: Well, that's really the thing I think is you know he he can still play defense. I think Brett knows that he's you know not going to be receiving as much playing time but also i think brett is just like really reliable like he's like your typical like to use all of the cliches like gritty hard nose grinder like you know just busts ass doesn't care about running into a wall like he is to me the like hardiest guy on that team and he's he's not the youngest guy on the team but if i see him run into a wall i'm like oh he's probably fine <laughs> and so, you know, I'm kind of just assuming, but I, I really think that Brett's durability is really something that, you know, if I'm running the Yankees, like you have a guy who's been around, he knows the team, he's left-handed, he was able to jump in and, in a variety of spots last year. And honestly, like, you know, Hicks is going to be the leadoff guy, but Brett can still wear pitchers out. You know, he's still taking, you know, a, a, a large number of pitches per plate appearance, so I think I think it makes sense, you know, they're not gonna play him every day, but I, I get the sense that it's kind of a one more year thing and I think it works.
0: At least there's one guy still left on the team who's not 6'4 or taller. Truly!
2: What am, <laughs> what am I going to do? we that before,
0: but it's really... <laughs> I mean,
2: what am I going to do? They got Staggering. rid of Sonny
0: Gray. They signed yes! Lemayhu, who's huge. No one realizes how huge Lemayhu is. And yeah. whether Bird or, or Voigt wins that job, they're both huge. Everyone's huge. All the pitchers are huge. Paxton, huge. Everyone yep. huge. <laughs> Gardner just is like the only non-huge person left on this team. They tried Toreas, which uh, yes. that seems like they're going out of their way to only have huge people.
2: Well, let's see. Andujar and Torres are not particularly tall. And
0: after that,
2: Zach Britton's not like six four, <laughs> <yeah>. right?
1: <laughs> um, I guess Dee is. No, six, six three. Yeah, yeah, so he's still massive.
2: Did, yeah, they have two six foot three shortstops. So there's not <laughs> like, really much hope for me.
1: Like you do. You're <laughs> 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 gonna have to um, walk around on stilts. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah, there's uh it's legitimately tough not to be able to actually make eye contact with anyone easily. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> and then of course we have six eight Dylan Batansis, who <laughs> is going to start the season on the injured list. And I think, you know, you can look at projections and say, like, yeah, on paper, this is the best bullpen in baseball. Mm -hmm. But I I don't think until you think about how much it potentially, at least in the short term, doesn't super matter for the Yankees, (laughs) that -hmm. they will be without uh, (laughs) Dylan's assistance for the first little bit, that you truly start to appreciate the degree to which this bullpen is – set to outpace the rest of the league and not just, you know, the American League. What is the plan at the moment for deploying all of these uh, giant humans who live in the bullpen as opposed to the giant humans who, you know, will stand behind them? I think while Dellen is out,
2: Stephen Tarpley is going to get some more time. And Tarpley's had a great spring and it's like, it's kind of like, you know, he's a, he's another lefty sinker baller. And so it's it's like a true – luxury like if you didn't have someone on mop up duty you would just have a bunch of guys who were impossible to get a hit off but you know last year the Yankees rotation really struggled to get through 5 and i think you really have to manage some of those guys in the bullpen i think chapman even though he's obviously the closer you know he's he's got knee tendinitis and that to me is kind of the lurking Issue with that bullpen. I am interested to see how they all get used and stacked up, but I think it actually, you know, it's it's nice when you have a guy like Severino who kind of hit a wall in the second half, or a guy or guys like Cece, you know, who's not going to go eight innings every outing, or even Jay Happ, who sometimes he guys foul a lot of pitches off Happ, they foul a lot of pitches off Paxton. So I think it really just gives them the flexibility to use their rotation more effectively, and especially if they have younger guys. But I'm I'm interested to see it. I mean, the idea of like standing in that box and facing in this order or in another, you know, Britton, Batansis, Ottavino, Chapman, like, no, thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. No, thank you, especially because you've got you know, Ottavino stuff looking like a wiffle ball, Britain's stuff sinking down to the ground, is stuff going right past you, and then Chapman's stuff like scaring the piss out of you. So <laughs> I think in short, they can kind of do whatever the hell they want with it, honestly.
1: <laughs> yeah, they certainly have constructed it around a bunch of different looks. And it seems like it would have a, a shocking and disturbing number of permutations if you're an American League hitter, especially.
2: I mean, truly, can you imagine going from like autovino stuff to batances stuff that uh, <laughs> yeah, i mean no. for me it, it no, wouldn't thank you. make any difference
0: who i faced <laughs> okay, <that's> before <laughs> but <laughs> okay yeah. but i think i
2: would i would i would almost rather face Dellen because mm. even though it's
0: he might walk you know, me
2: even, yeah he might <laughs> walk you and even though it's coming at you really fast and hard i don't really trust the movement on autovino stuff that that scares me it's too unpredictable so <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> so I think there's a, a perception among people who hate the Yankees that the Yankees have this black magic where <laughs> they sign veterans out of nowhere who then recapture their prime and are great for no money. And <laughs> so I, I think as soon as the Yankees signed Troy there was maybe a, a fear that he would bounce back and be too low again and the Bouges would have to watch him 19 times <laughs> up close. and. He has slugged 586 in spring training, and he is healthy. So how has he looked, and... How does this infield work? Because it's, it's odd because they went and they got D.J. LeMayhew, who is like maybe the best second baseman in baseball or, you know, top two or three, mm-hmm. and he doesn't really seem to have a spot exactly. So he's like almost a utility guy now. So yep. how do all these people fit? And that's even before D.D. comes back. I mean, maybe it resolves itself somehow before then, but how does all of this end up?
2: That is my question too. <laughs> except you know we, we all know that that depth evaporates. Mm-hmm. but right now okay so I think it's going to be Tyler Wade will make the team as an, as a utility infielder outfielder. and then DJ, yes, they are trying him out at third. I think he's played five or six games at third and has he's looked he's looked fine. Um, he's played a few at first, but they don't feel like they need to work that one as much, but Tulos looked pretty good moving around. He's made some, some nice defensive plays. He looks, he looks comfortable. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard for me to know because I never saw him personally, um, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day. And it's part of it is like seeing him run the bases on the backfield. It's like, Oh, is this because he's a guy who's had serious ankle and leg issues? Or is this because he's, Six foot three and thirty four years old. Mm-hmm. He's looked good in the field. I think you know he's still he's still working to catch up with his at bats. But he is you know he's he's in the cage all the time. He's obviously very serious about this. He he obviously had a very hard time sitting at home and and watching baseball and watching his friends and talking about baseball with his son Taz you know the the thing is just managing him and so i really do think we're going to see a lot of Glaber Torres at short and DJ at second i know that Troy is the starting shortstop but i think we're going to see Glaber at short i don't know maybe 3 days a week something like that mm-hmm. maybe that's an over the top prediction and then when when Dee comes back then then they somehow just change the defensive structure of the game. Somehow, I'm not quite sure. I'm not
1: quite sure. <laughs> not, quite sure. <laughs> not not to be limited to expanding the DH, we are going to now add a new position mm-hmm. to the field that only the Yankees can play.
2: Yeah, I mean, some clubs have been experimenting with a with a four man outfield. I, I guess the Yankees are going for a five man infield, and um, everybody's everybody's just behind the times. <laughs>
1: Well, one, one more guy who I think might fall into the category of, uh, Yankees fans being, um, a bit persnickety. Although, you know, there was a, an obvious drop in, uh, performance from the MVP years, Giancarlo Stanton. Mm-hmm. And speaking of another giant human, um, <laughs> Where where are you in terms of where you expect Giancarlo to fall this year? I think that a lot of folks maybe looked at the MVP or myself included as something of an aberration and last year was probably closer to what we might expect. You know, going to continue to get a lot of DH time. So, where where are you expecting or thinking that Giancarlo might end up falling this year?
2: I think people forget that he actually had a very productive season for them. Yeah, and I think worth more than four wins. <laughs> yeah, but I do think they forget that because he had some truly dreadful at bats. Um, but you know, he he has said that it took him a while to settle in. I think I I think I understand that. Like while he was still hitting pretty well, he was striking out more. I think he will have a I think he will have a better better season. I think you know the the projections. Expect him to maybe even have a better offensive season than Aaron Judge, though I think they'll probably just be kind of neck and neck. I think I think it'll be a better season. I am just interested to see if he cuts down on the strikeouts because at the end of the day, you know, an an out is an out to some extent. If, if if no one's on base, an out is an out. But it, it it did just give like an an ugly look to it that it was either all or nothing and. So I, I think it'll be better. He seems more comfortable. You know, he's he's been in this league. He's personally I'm projecting, but like he doesn't have the whole Marlins drama and the immediate rear view mirror. I think he was like a yeah, it was like what, a four-win player last year? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe maybe four three.
1: We had him at fan at four two, which okay. you know same difference with the one twenty seven WRC plus. That yeah. power helps a lot.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I would say maybe. Okay, I'll make a prediction. Maybe he has a one thirty five, one forty WRC. Wow. Though I don't know. No, no. Actually, I no. I, I'm I not. I'm not wowing
1: at the prediction as if it is wrong. I'm just wowing that um, we are going to manage to extract uh, two predictions from you in this preview pod, and we are only going to ask for one of them.
0: Yeah, voluntary prediction. Wow.
2: I, I'm, I'm like prediction averse, so I don't know what, like, black magic you guys have done to
0: me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's totally capable of that. He has done that. He has (laughs) done that repeatedly. He's done better than that. So, yeah, that's uh, that's not going out too far on a limb. But, yeah, I'm also curious about whether you sense any difference in Aaron Boone as a sophomore manager. And, you know, he's been through the the playoff ringer once now. He has taken the criticism for how he handled the bullpen in October Mm -hmm. And, of course, he was very inexperienced as a manager last mm-hmm. year. He was hired because of his communication skills and how he'd work with the front office and work with young players. And I assume he delivered on those fronts, more or less. But have you noticed any, any difference in Boone the second time around?
2: Because I haven't seen him manage actual games. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I haven't seen a lot with that. And, you know, Boone has always been, to me, kind of kind of comfortable well, my understanding is, sure, like any new person to the Yankees organization, he was a little bit astounded by the by the level of information they had. But, you know, he said something early on last year that really stuck with me about how basically through growing up as a baseball kid, he he brought with him just a, a long view of the season, and it didn't really make a difference that he had a different job. I think, you know, I, I am interested to see – how his in-game, you know, managing changes this year, but it really has honestly blown me away to hear about his relationships with players. You know, he went down to the Dominican once or twice, he came down to Tampa, he he went all over, he talks to guys all the time. And so when we ask him like, you know, have you had a conversation with Greg bird about you know his potential playing time it's you know we're talking all the time and that is the case you know especially when you talk to guys who came in from outside organizations they do trust him because he's i mean he's young he's relatable and he he understands kind of kind of where they're at and so i do think he has a lot of trust in that clubhouse and it's you know it's That has actually really stood out to me.
0: So one other question I had is, you know, the Yankees are not a particularly talkative organization (laughs) or front office, which Mm -hmm. probably makes your job harder. (laughs) And there are some teams that talk a lot about the things they're doing in player development and Mm -hmm. integrating data and technology into players' routines and Yankees don't talk about that so much, but they definitely do it a lot, and sometimes Mm -hmm. Yankees players will talk about it, like Zach Britton, when he Mm -hmm. came over from Baltimore and was like, what? (laughs) Stats exist? And they show them to players? This is amazing. So... Have you seen many instances of that and and heard particularly some of the young players who've come up through the system talking about that? Because when I just kind of counted the size of player development departments when I was working on my book, the Yankees' Mm -hmm. player development staff is just enormous. It's like more than 100 people who are employed in some kind of player development capacity. So I wonder how that manifests itself from afar.
2: Yeah, I'm really interested in the Yankees' player development and I actually wish I had been able to spend more time over at the minor league side. But (laughs) yeah, I mean think about it. Like this is an organization that gives their players, you know, like you walk in the door and they hand you an iPad with your with your jersey number on it and it has everything that you could possibly want. And you see, you know, guys have looked at video and scouting reports forever, but they can just sit at their locker and do it. They can do it on the bus and it, it is a lot of information and you know, I was actually kind of envious when early on in spring, all of my fellow beat writers were like tweeting photos of like, oh, look at all these rapsoto or Edutronics in the, you know, in the bullpen. And mm-hmm. the Yankees are way more quiet about that. Right. If Larry Rothschild could have his spring bullpen in like a concrete lair where no one could ever <laughs> see, he totally was. Yeah. Um, I've, I've heard some... I've started to hear more about the the technology they're choosing to use, but it took asking like five different people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they have, they're just blending so many different types of things that I think I I can't imagine. I, I truly can't imagine what what information they have behind the scenes, because it just must be, it must be nuts. And so it makes it kind of, you know, it almost feels, feels silly for me to write about the team and how they're evaluating their players based off the information I have, because yeah, like you said, they have 8 million player development people. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, so what do I know? Even if I try my hardest, even if I ask around, even if I do the most research, you know, they, they know everything. (laughs) Mm-hmm.
1: Well, if it makes you feel better, when we were putting our Yankees list uh, together, there were many inscrutable young pitchers on that mm-hmm. list. So you are mm-hmm. far from alone.
2: <laughs> yeah, and and they all throw 118 miles an hour, and you have never heard of them. Yep,
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And
2: they're and they are all six foot five, and their <laughs> wingspans are all like 15 feet, <laughs> and they're a little bit wild, a little bit raw, and yep. it's just like. Bing bang, <laughs> bing bang, bing bang. You know.
0: <laughs> yeah. Did you have any uh, thoughts on Sonny Gray's comments about how he kind of implied that the Yankees sort of forced him to throw sliders and he didn't want to throw sliders, and that that was part of why he struggled so much as a Yankee? I think
2: you know. I think Sonny was trying to provide an an honest an honest assessment of maybe you know maybe a difference in philosophy. I don't think he actually took issue with the coaching staff I think I think maybe he found maybe the analytics a little bit heavy-handed but I'm not sure I mean I don't really because I think I think Sonny and having spoken to him throughout last year like I think he was being sincere I think my interpretation of it would be you know Eno who talked to Sonny all the time when Sonny was in Oakland saying hey man what's up with this I noticed this is this, this and Sonny giving, you know, saying, yeah, no, they they wanted me to throw my slider, but I couldn't, you know, make it work the way I wanted it to. And I think just because it's sunny gray, because it's New York, I think it got distorted in a way that I think has been almost a little bit sad, because I think it's a sensitive issue for everybody at this point. I think if you look at what he was saying on his on its face, like, honestly, I haven't looked at the numbers because, Eno wrote it for us. So why would I backtrack <laughs> over, Eno's like extensive research? Yeah, I mean, it he was probably just telling the truth. He's he's a nice, honest guy, and I I can't really imagine him being super salty about it in that way. Yeah,
0: you've looked him in the eye, you've been able to. Well, <laughs> and then, and that's the thing is
2: that Sonny, has Sunny even after his worst outings would look us in the eye. You mm-hmm. know, he was he was sincere.
0: And he's only 5'10 or something, so he actually could. Yeah, like
2: one of of the few guys in that room I could actually freaking talk to.
0: (laughs) And he's gone. So (laughs) second and final prediction of the segment, give us the Yankees' 2019 win total.
2: Oh, my gosh. Okay, first of all, if I say anything under 100, I will be killed. Or people will say, I knew it. Send Hal to jail. That's so. the, the
0: hidden cost of of this prediction because uh, some of our guests will mock the the weightiness that some of our other guests give to this question. But if you're a beat writer and you have Yankees fans in your mentions all day, they will either be mad at you if you lowball them or uh, or just gloat for the rest of the year. <laughs> so there's uh, not a lot of incentive for you to say a low number here, I guess. But uh, I mean, they're also a good team, so you probably yeah, don't no. have to say a, a low number.
2: I I think they absolutely improved. Okay, let's work through this. So they were at 100 (laughs) wins. That is a very convenient round number. The Mm -hmm. Orioles, they struggled to beat them last year, but come on. It's it's the Orioles. (laughs) And I don't know what the Red Sox are doing with their bullpen situation, but the Rays Mm -hmm. are a little bit better. I'm going to go with, how many did the Red Sox win last year? 108. Okay, then I'm going to go with 105. (laughs) I'm (laughs) going to go with 105. Okay, like they're not going to throw away those sunny gray outings. The Orioles somehow got worse. Um, Again, I don't really understand the Red Sox bullpen situation, so that might make up some of that, that ground. Yes, I'm going with 105.
0: All right. Well, you can follow Lindsay on Twitter and tweet at her, at (laughs) Lindsay Adler, about how she dared to project (laughs) that the Yankees would win fewer games than the winningest team in Red Sox franchise history. (laughs) And you can also read her at The Athletic. Thank you, Lindsay. Thanks, guys. And we will take one more quick break, and we'll be back with another athletic writer, Andre Fernandez, to talk about the Marlins. All right, so now it is time to talk about one team that is not signing anyone to extensions right now and is not making much news at all. And to do that, we are joined by Andre Fernandez, who covers the Marlins for The Athletic. Hey, Andre, how's it going? Hey, Ben, how's it going? It's going okay. I want to ask you just about covering this team before we actually ask about the team itself, because you've been on the Marlins beat for a few years and they haven't been great years for the Marlins. There aren't that many great years in Marlins history, although the great ones were pretty great. What are the unique challenges of covering this team or or what are the upsides? What are the downsides? I mean, it's not a a crowded beat. So I guess you, you have more of the real estate to yourself, but you also have some challenges in terms of getting people interested in this team and the fact that they trade all their good players eventually and so on.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, in the past, that's, you know, it's also... It's been a bit of a challenge, obviously, even now with, you know, the way things got off to, got started, you know, with the new ownership group and the moves that they made. But, um, you know, I think this year you know, the expectations are obviously low because this team is obviously still, you know, rebuilding and, you know, trying to put the pieces in place for something in the future. But, I mean, I think you, you're, you're going to start to see some of the, the seeds they've planted this year with some of the younger players, especially on the pitching side that, you know, look like they might. Be able to take the next step and become, you know, pretty decent, uh, you know, second year guys in the league that got their feet wet last season and now are really going to try to pitch for full seasons. We've kind of seen that in spring training a little bit. You know, they they won. They ended up winning eleven games in a row until, you know, until uh, they lost this one today. But they, you know, it's generated some excitement at least. So it, it, you know, you look basically you look toward the future with this team right now. And you hope that, that this new ownership group isn't going to make, you know, some of the same, same mistakes that the past, you know, owners of this team have and, you know, and really try to continue to, to you know, to, to develop strong ties with the fan base down there. And, you know, obviously it was a rough start because, you know, they came in and made the moves they made, you know, some of them, they kind of had to, 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 to get rid of some of the chokehold on the payroll that they had, you know, like in terms of a Giancarlo Stanton and then some. You wonder if, you know, maybe they could have gotten more for or not. You know, time will tell, you know, with Christian Yelich and guys like that. But, I mean, that that's the part that's really hard for them right now is just that initial taste of losing, you know, all-star caliber players like that and kind of trying to prove to people, hey, that we're, we're, we're building a young core here and it's going to be different down the road. You know, time will tell. And that's been the part that that's kind of been a, a challenge to kind of, you know, generate some interest in a team that, that really is in the division that they're in, especially is not expected to contend anytime soon. Yeah.
1: I wonder if you can talk a little bit about sort of looking ahead to that future, the approach that the front office has taken with some of the more recent acquisitions. Obviously, we were all sitting around waiting most of the winter for the RealMuto trade to go through. And when they finally made that trade, the, the prospect, the marquee prospect that they targeted uh, is one who has a tremendous amount of upside in Sixo Sanchez, but also has a fair amount of risk and volatility in his profile. And you know, there are front offices that might shy away from that kind of volatility. There are also ones clearly the like Marlins that might embrace it as an opportunity to get upside that they might not otherwise have access to. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what their approach was with that particular trade and why they landed where they did?
3: Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think that you, you hit it right there in the terms of they haven't really landed that that one prospect yet that, that just screams, you know, this guy's going to make it for sure, or at least the, the odds are really good. I think there's a lot of high-risk, high-reward guys that they've had through all these trades, not just the Real Muto deal. And six, though, I think the upside they see there is this kid could be the ace of their staff in in, in the next year or so. But obviously, that's yeah, assuming, you know, his arm issue last year doesn't continue to flare up and become a real problem, potentially, you know, Tommy John or something like that. You know, they're, they're going very careful with him. You know, he's he hasn't even really started to pitch yet at all in minor league camp. You know, they're they're trying to take a very cautious approach. Basically, he was on a throwing program with the Phillies. The Marlins decided to just go from scratch with their own throwing program and start right back at the beginning and not, to be clear, not to ramp him up right away and, and just really be careful with that investment they made. And then they felt like the trade itself, you know, had potential to be to be something good for them, considering what they gave up in return, not just because of six, though, because of Jorge Alfaro as well. I mean, that's another guy who has a lot of upside you know, looks like with with the arm that he has behind the plate, if his defense can come around a little bit, and you know he's got power at the plate as well, but a lot of strikeouts. So again, it's 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 that high risk, high reward where you see a lot of potential, but it all depends on their development and how much they can continue to to fine tune these guys on both sides. You know, as as, a, as they go forward. I mean, Alfaro very similar to to Lewis Brinson, to Monte Harrison, the guys that they've had in the last few years, where there's you know, like I said, plenty of potential, but you know, a lot of a lot of wait and see. And this is going to be a big year for a guy like Brinson, too. I mean, the other kid, Will, Will Stewart, is another solid lefty that they feel also added to the package there. He's been, he's, he's looked pretty good so far in the bits that we've seen him. I mean, again, another guy that maybe down the road can be a part of their rotation, they feel.
0: And after the Realmudo trade, Sam Miller updated his fun fact or extremely unfun fact about how virtually every good player in Marlins history has been traded eventually, and the couple that haven't weren't for lack of trying. But I saw some suggestion that, okay, yes, this extends that trend, but this is different because this is not purely a cost-cutting move this is just a rebuild. This is a, a teardown like a lot of other teams have done. And the return for Real Muto was, I think, widely regarded as fair, if if not better than that, maybe good. So yeah. I know that they had at least made some sort of extension offer to Real Muto and he wasn't interested and I can't blame him. And I don't know whether the offers were any good anyway, but do you see this as a different, Thing you know, compared to all of the other franchise cornerstone type players who've been traded in the past,
3: yeah. I mean, I think in, in general, I mean, I think they right now it does look like something along the lines of what we've seen some teams do where they've torn down and then you know built it from the ground up and had success. You know, like you know, the Astros are an example that always comes to mind that you know that sort of rebuild to, to eventually be a champion with a, with a young core and. It doesn't. it doesn't feel like the moves of the past where they just quit on guys quickly or like you said, cost cutting moves. I mean the only one that had an element to that was Stanton obviously because they wanted to get out of from under that enormous contract. But even in that one, the two of the guys that they got back in return, Jorge Guzman, could end up being a pretty decent piece for them, whether it's in the rotation or maybe as a as a closer or a high leverage guy in you know reliever type of guy with the velocity he can throw and if, he, if the secondary pitches come around, you know he could be a good piece, and then Jose Devers, who's still really young. You know, eighteen-year-old uh, shortstop, Dominican kid. I think they might have turned nineteen actually. By now, I might not have to check that. But he's probably going to start the year at the single A level. But they really like him, athletic. You know, kid probably has to put on a few pounds still. You know, kind of still pretty young, but has room for development. You know, good bat that could end up being a piece down the road as well. So it again, it goes back to a lot of guys still have to prove the you know what the scouting reports have said, you know the upside and all that sort of thing, but they're invested in getting that quality to turn into a turn it into a young core and not so much just shed payroll and let's you know you try to be like the cheap way that they've kind of done things in in, you know, in the past and in, in recent years.
1: One not cheap thing that they did was move around a bunch of international signing money to bring in Victor Victor Mesa, who everyone was pretty excited about. And the last I heard, and you can give an update to our listeners, uh, he had gone down with a hamstring injury. What's the latest on Victor Victor Mesa?
3: Yeah, he see, that that's the other one too. The international market was one that they had never really tapped into, at least not the way they really made a push this past this past summer to get – or that past fall, excuse me, to get the Mesa brothers. He's back in the backfields now. He's playing again, kind of in controlled situations right now where they don't want him – you know, example, he had a home run the other day. The other day he got a hit in a, in a game but then came off. They didn't even run the bases. So they're still kind of being careful with that, but he's getting slowly back to action. And the biggest thing with him is just getting as many reps as they can. That's that's the unfortunate side of that, that, that hamstring pull he had the other day was – They were hoping to get him through a full camp just to kind of break the ice, to get him playing again, to get him, you know, used to, you know, baseball, especially baseball in the U.S., to just that quality of pitching that he hasn't been exposed to as much, you know, hasn't really seen and and just continue his development to speed, you know, to kind of get it as, you know, going as much as possible. And they're taking the first steps to that now, but that was obviously a bit of a setback. So, I mean, even before the hamstring happened, I really thought he would, he's going to take this entire season in the minors to continue to try and develop his game. And then maybe next season, if things go well, now that may be set back a little bit more, but perhaps by 2020, at some point, if he progresses, I could see the Marlins, you know, Elevating him little by little through their system until until he's ready to get there
0: and I know that the Marlins made a change to how they were tabulating their attendance last season Which mm. led to perhaps a, what appeared to be a larger decline than it was Although I assume that there was some decline But as they reported the numbers, they drew 811,000 fans, about 10,000 fans per game That was last by a lot Is there any reason to think that fans will come back? I mean, when the Marlins are eventually good again, will this fan base support this team? Or given what they've been put through and all the public funding of the ballpark stuff and just the years of sort of bad faith with the fan base, is there any reason to expect that that fan base will be there when the Marlins are good again?
3: Yeah, well they've been they've been trying now in the off season really hard, not just with the redesign of the logo and the uniforms, but they really they've made a push in the community to try and and you know really win the fans back. You know, businesses have started investing again in the ballpark. You know, they've reached out to local local restaurants and that sort of thing to come to the ballpark and put something there. And and they've redesigned the park. We're gonna find out in about a week, you know, how the park what the park looks like even before opening day. They're gonna give us a tour and you know, they've really made some changes. Obviously, the ones that have been publicized a lot are like the home run sculpture in center field. You know, they've, they've done away. They've moved that to the outside of the park and put a whole, you know, standing room, entertainment area there for the fans, you know, trying to kind of liven the experience for, for them. But Miami is a town that supports winners for the most part, you know, generally speaking, you know, no, no matter if you're the Marlins or any other pro or college team, you know, so until they start to, you know, get better in the win column, I think that's what's gonna ultimately decide whether or not they they see a substantial growth in attendance. But I mean, you know, you could see a spike a little bit this year if they're not as bad as a lot of people expect. If maybe this young pitching staff surprises some people and there's some carryover from what we've seen this spring, you know, and 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 just promote those young, exciting names is what they really need to do. They really need to try and as much as they can, to 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 make some of these guys visible, to make some of these guys, you know, more known names. Because you know, like you said, when there's so much turnover in a franchise, it's really hard for the fans to to identify with anybody when they're gone four or five years after they really become you know, a household name. So can you talk about some of those exciting
0: young pitchers? Cause I know you just wrote about them and I think some of them are probably pretty anonymous on a, a national level, at least because yeah. even when I look at their, their roster resource <laughs> depth chart right now, I'm kind of trying to remind myself, okay, who's that again? <laughs> Cause this is right. like a, a game we've played on this podcast in the past, like name the Marlins starting rotation. And it, it is not an easy game. Right, I mean, it,
3: uh, unfortunately, and uh, you know, their opening day starter Jose Urrea drew a lot of headlines for the wrong reasons last year with the whole incident with hitting Acuna with that pitch and everything like that, you know. But he's there still, and he's a guy now. He's gonna this is his third year as a full time starter. But you know, to me, the main almost like a four, like a four you could look at right now are the sec- the second year pitchers that all start all got a few starts last season, and that's Trevor Richards. Sandy Alcantara, Pablo Lopez, and Caleb Smith, and to me, those four right there all have a very good chance of sticking for a while in this rotation for different reasons. I mean, we've seen, you know, Trevor Richards, you know, has one of the best changeups in baseball right now. He showed it last year. He got the most starts. I think he started twenty-five games last year, as rookie season. You know, crazy journey from where he was playing independent league baseball. You know, just about two, three years ago, working odd jobs like at a brewery in Milwaukee. He's a substitute teacher, you know, doing all that kind of stuff while he's on his way up. And now he makes it to the majors. And this this, uh, this spring, we not only see the change up, we see a pretty good curveball that he's added to it. He's been working on a cutter that looks effective. His The mix of all of that is making his uh, fastball a little bit less reliant on the fastball which is not you know not one of his best pitches but now if he doesn't have to throw it as much he can mix that in with these others so he looks like a more dominant guy he's had this spring i've seen him between him lopez and smith going back and forth with games that they're carrying you know either shutouts or even no hitters into the fifth and sixth inning of some of these extended starts and even more than the results you're seeing how he, they're fooling hitters you know with you know, Lopez has increased velocity uh, this spring. Smith has increased velocity this spring. He's coming off shoulder surgery, and they weren't sure if they were going to be able to start the season with him. But he comes out the first uh, the first time, throws five, like four no-hit innings. Then the next time, again, throws like six shutout innings. I think it was or five. And this guy looks ready for opening day now. And at the very least, to be able to fit the, those four into a rotation that also has Urania and also has Dan Straley, and, uh, and of course, Wei and Chen is part of it too, even though you know, that, that's a whole other <laughs> conversation of how he struggled. But the Marlins are going in, Yeah. maybe not doing a six-man rotation per se, but their, their idea is to possibly carry all seven and rotate a couple of guys in and out of the rotation to the bullpen. To me, it's probably going to be Chen going to the bullpen the way, he, the way it's gone with him. And maybe Smith at the beginning, just because he's still sort of working his way back up from, from the surgery last July. But, you know, those guys, all of them and Sandy Alcantara, I haven't even gotten to Sandy yet, but these he's the guy he's got, you know, the, the triple digit potential velocity with the fastball. I mean, with him, it's been some control issues. He, walk, he still walks a lot of guys, so they're still kind of working with him, you know, to, to get off to better starts, a little better command. But, you know, if all that comes along, he's another one that could be easily at least the number two, number three in an ideal rotation. So so you definitely have talent with those with that core right there. You know coming up and it'll be it'll be interesting to see how much they can progress this year
0: and with some of the kind of low dollar low year veteran pickups that they've made this winter whether it's Mm. Sergio Romo or Curtis Granderson or Neil Walker is the idea they're avoiding absolute embarrassment is it providing some you know mentorship or leadership for young players is it hoping that they have a good first half and you can trade them for something
3: I mean, they could be potential trade candidates down the road, maybe by by the time the deadline rolls around, assuming, you know, everything goes the way people expect as far as, you know, the record and, th- and stuff of that nature. They're all one year deals. So it's all one year guys, obviously. But I think the the mentorship there has been really valuable in the, you know in spring training, especially Romo, to me, is the guy who can make the biggest impact. He could even be their closer this year. I mean, it's possible. They, it's either him. They haven't really committed to putting one guy to close full time. It's either him, Ste- Drew Steckenrider, or potentially even Adam Conley, the lefty, in certain situations where maybe a lefty is better suited. But Romo came in the other day. One of them was struggling, and he just came in, boom, boom, got got right through that ninth inning like clockwork. I mean, he's he's it's amazing. He still looks like his slider is still as effective as it's always been. He's he, you know, and then. Just that 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 pre- the personality, that presence in the in in the clubhouse, has also been, you know, really helpful for these young guys to see, to really identify them who they really are as pitchers. And I think he's the one on the field that could make the biggest impact. But Granderson and Walker, to have those two guys with the wealth of experience they have they've had, I wouldn't expect them to to you know to light it up as far as uh, as hitting numbers. But they'll come in and 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 even Granderson, I think last year showed he could still bring some value in certain situations, you know, hitting against righties and that sort of thing. And I think that's the way the Marlins are looking at using both of them, you know, in platoons where it's, it's in specific matchups where they're going to depend on them the most. You know, Granderson could end up leading off when they're facing a lefty, for example. So, you know, they at least for the first few months of the season, It doesn't hurt to have that when you have such a young team everywhere else. You mentioned Brinton. I
0: wanted to ask if you think that he has a a step to make or whether he's going to continue to to struggle because obviously there's promise there, there's raw talent there, but there's also a 240 on base percentage there. That is uh, not playable. So are there strides that you can expect him to make sometime soon?
3: Well, his his, his approach at the plate in the spring has looked pretty good. I got to give him that. I mean, at the beginning, of, uh, he, he hit a few home runs early, then that's kind of cooled off a bit. But he's still, if you look at just the way he's seeing pitches, he's not chasing as much this year. He's being a little more patient. You know, the power has come along a little bit. So, I mean, if you take just that example, along with Late last season when he came back from the from the little hip injury he had in September, the numbers were a little better. You started to see some of those signs that maybe things were finally a little bit on the upswing. But it's really gonna be a, a big year for him because they're expecting results this time around. If he's comes out and he's hitting two, you know, 199 again, that's not gonna cut it. They're you know, the their their patience, he's on a shorter leash, I think, this year when it comes to, to seeing so, some signs of, of progress when it comes to the hitting. And basing it off the spring, like I said before, I think he will make progress. I think it will be better this year. But, you know, like I said, if it's not, if he's still hitting that badly by, you know, by May or whatnot, it's going to it's gonna be a setback because this is a kid that, you know, the really they invested a lot in. He was a big part of the Yelich trade. And, you know, it's very similar to Monte Harrison, another guy who's, you know, he's, he's in... He's in the minors, he's gonna start in triple A, but similar situation. The the alarming strikeout rate, five you know, potential five tool guy if all goes well, you know, toolsy player, but has to start showing it.
1: I want to zoom back out for a second and think about not just the players that have come through the system, but some of the changes we've seen in the front office for the Marlins. Um, you know, beyond Jeter, which is an obvious one and a very public-facing one, but the sense externally has been that over the last year they have really built up their player development group, their baseball ops group. They've brought in people who have come from other front offices, and I wonder if you could just talk for a second about the direction of those those parts of the organization and sort of how they're sitting with one another. You know, I think every front office is analytically minded these days, but where are the Marlins in their progression along that continuum?
3: Yeah, I think it's, there's definitely an added focus to that. And I think you could see that in the amount of uh, of, of individuals they added to the scouting department, per se, in terms of, you know, not just scouts themselves, but also, you know, you know Dan Greenlee's come in, you know, that would be, and in the analytics department, there's a lot more focus on, you know, not just using the data, but really applying it to the players. I mean, the coaching hires they made are all guys who are receptive to that, who incorporate that in the in what they teach. I mean, you've seen, you know, a lot of that in the spring. You know, with Trey Hillman, who was brought in as an infielder's coach to replace Perry Hill. You know, Mel Stottlemyre incorporates that, incorporates a lot of that, working with the pitchers, and you've seen the impact that it's made, you know, on a lot of guys, you know, adding new pitches, getting comfortable with some of the ones that they already – Weren't throwing as well before, and and really they they have stressed that because really what it com- this whole rebuild comes down to that how much they can develop this core of prospects that they've added they've added a lot of, of of prospects over the last few years with these trades but whether they develop or not you know that that's pretty much how fast they're going to be able to turn this thing around and and really Gary Denbo and, and and the staff that he's brought in it's really up to them you know to to continue to make to help these guys progress and fast track this as much as possible you know to to eventually get to the point where they can get a window here of contention going and, and and see what happens if they can turn this, you know, make this something sustainable, which is what Miami has never seen the Marlins really be. I mean, outside of the two World Series here, you've never had a process of a team where, where they've just sustainably, you know, stayed there and really been a contender year after year. Mm hmm.
0: So I wanted to ask a a Jeter question. I think he made some PR missteps early in his tenure here. Do you think that he has settled in? Do you think he has learned anything? Do you think he underestimated the the difficulty or the enormity of the task that he took on here?
3: I wonder if they did to a point because, you know, you come in and you're you're so used to success as a player the way he was. And I, I wonder if there was a little bit of, You know, we know what we're doing a little bit of, yeah, we, everything, the, the proven track record, you know what I mean? And then you come in in this new role and while he, he's slowly surrounded himself with good people, but it's kind of been, you know, a little bit of a rough transition and really, really realizing the, the monumental tasks that they have, especially the one they inherited. But then on, and then on top of that, after you make the moves that they knew they were going to make it really just compounded just what they were facing to really turn this thing around both on the field and even more so off the field. I don't think they realize the amount the, the the big challenge that it really is. It really still is, I'm saying present, not even in the past. They to turn this thing around both in, in image wise with with uh, the way the Marlins have have been perceived and continue to be perceived by many in Miami. They just there's a lot of people that, you know, are we're, we're just tired of this franchise, you know, constantly tearing down and you know, the first impression was you're, you're just not, you're, you're the same as Jeffrey Loria and those guys. Why should we believe you're any different? They've been working hard in the community the last few months and the last year or so to really turn their own, doing a lot of good things. But like I said, only time will tell if this sticks and it really, it really starts to drive people to, to really support this team because there's a lot of ugly history there. And, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and I wonder if, yeah, I, I think just by the way, Jeter has been talking the last few times that he's, spoken publicly, I think uh, it's getting harder to be patient for him. And I think they've taken a step back as well and been like, wow, you know, we really have, we've really had our work cut out for us even more than we really thought when, when they took this.
0: So we always end these segments by asking for a a win total prediction and uh, that's not probably a pleasant topic for the Marlins right now because not only are they not very good, but they're in an extremely difficult division where every other team is good and got better in part because the Marlins traded their best player to one of them. So what do you think the Marlins end up with this year in terms of wins?
3: Well, if you you asked me that pre-spring, I would have told you less than the 63 they had last year for sure, but I mean Seeing the way this pitching is coming around, it's going to be interesting to see if they can actually get something going in the lineup or not. I mean, you can't obviously just win with the guys keeping them. You know, with, with the guys pitching only, that there has to be some sort of semblance of an offensive lineup to help them out. So. I still think it's going to be somewhere in the 60s as far as wins, maybe around 65 or so to 70, somewhere in that range, depending on how fast these guys come along. Now, if we're surprised, then, you know, some of these bats like, you know, say Brinson comes along, maybe Brian Anderson becomes like their their all-star representative, but legitimately having a good season. You know, if factors like that chime in, maybe they... Can notch it up, but they're not—they're not there yet to be a team that's around, obviously around like 500 to me. Even if things break well, it'd be very surprising if they got close to that. I'd conservative estimate. I'd still say somewhere in that, you know, maybe 65 to 70 win win range if things go well. Now, if, if if some injuries happen and 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 pitchers disappoint, then it could be a really rough year.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're not going to get a break playing these other teams in this division. It's just going to be, yeah. And, and that's the, and
3: that's the other thing, you know, the fake you're going to, you're going to have 19 against four potential playoff team, 19 each against four potential playoff teams. I mean. On the flip side of that, they do play the AL Central a little bit. Maybe that'll offset it a tad. But Ken Rosenthal actually wrote something a couple days ago saying that they could be one of those where they're, they're not quite, they're not obviously not the Rays of last year, but they could be like when the Rays were out of it, but they were a constant irritant to a few of the contenders like the Yankees and the Red Sox, you know, that sort of thing. Maybe it's a team that occasionally will bite a team, you know, and, and, and have an upset here or there, but it's going to, it's going to depend a lot on, on how fast these guys progress to, to even, to, to even make that a, a continual thing.
0: Yeah, I guess occasionally beating a good team is is not uh, quite as enticing as being a good team, but maybe they will be a good team again at some point. So until then, and whenever that happens, you can follow Andre's coverage of the Marlins at The Athletic. You can also find him on Twitter at FernandezAndreC. Andre, thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. And Meg, I will talk to you next week. Good luck finishing your enormous workload.
1: Thank you. We'll have real baseball then.
0: Yeah, opening day.
1: And not at 2 a.m.
0: <laughs> right. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thank you, as always, for listening. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild, signing up to pledge some small monthly amount to keep the podcast going. The following five listeners have already done so. Andrew Leahy, Ryan. Enrique Wallace Luke Y, and CJ Pentland thanks to all of you you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild we blew past 9,000 members on our way to 10 you can rate review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcast or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance as a reminder please check out Banish to the Pen our sister-daughter site operated by Effectively Wild listeners. They're rolling out all their team previews right now. I will link to it on the show page and in the Facebook group. If you're interested, I was also on On Baseball Writing, a podcast by Eric Roseberry, another Effectively Wild listener. I talked to him about my Red Scouting Report series and also about the book. Really fun podcast that I just generally recommend. I listen to it all the time. Eric interviews baseball writers of all stripes. You can pre-order my book with Travis Sachik, The MVP Machine. It comes out June 4th. Your early support is appreciated. We have just one team preview podcast left. Just one. It's going to be an AL East episode with the Red Sox and the Orioles. So have a wonderful weekend. And we will talk to you next week, which will bring baseball back.